We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we record our interviews on. Dermot and I are on Gadigal, Gundungurra and Tharawal country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting our coastline and ecosystems. We also extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this episode. Welcome to the seventh and final episode in the spring series of Goodwill Hunters, which asks, can Australia be a sustainability superpower? I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia, and I've been joined throughout the series by my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. WWF has been proud to collaborate with Goodwill Hunters on this series in the lead up to the COP26, the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow, which kicks off on the 31st of October and just a few days after this episode is released. As we enter the COP, we'd love to hear your conversations on the series. You can join us by at GoodwillPod or hashtag RegenerateAustralia. In this final episode, we speak with Minister Dan Van Holst-Pelligan, Minister for Energy and Mining in South Australia, as well as Marion Wilkinson, award-winning Australian journalist and author of the book, The Carbon Clubber. First, you'll hear us speak to Dan about South Australian policies and investments into renewable energy. And then you'll hear us speak to Marion about the current climate politics in Australia in the lead up to the COP. As the last in the series, this conversation has picked up on a theme that has cut across all seven conversations so far. Marion is right that we need to look forward and must leave the ugly politics of climate change behind. Dan's bipartisan description of how his government has built on and then lifted the previous government's renewable energy policy is a great lesson for policymakers in playing to where the puck is going that has positioned South Australia as a national leader in renewable energy. Australia as a country is fast approaching its own Netflix moment. Each of the seven conversations have been clear. If we don't seize this moment today, we will miss out. This is a once-in-a-century opportunity for Australia to pivot and to be a global superpower in sustainability that delivers innovative solutions for both people and our planet. We hope you've enjoyed the series. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning we've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. 
We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia. Thanks for joining us on Goodwill Hunters. Uh, We'll get straight into it. Many experts believe Australia can become a world leader in exporting renewable energy and major infrastructure projects are proposed to make this a reality. But can we really do it? And how exactly? And and with with your experience in South Australia, how is South Australia becoming um, established as a world leader in, in the uptake of renewables? Well, there's a there's a bit in that question. It depends what what it really means in terms of exporting renewable energy. We, we have extraordinary expertise. Uh, we have technology that's being delivered here, which I'm very confident we can export worldwide. Skills, knowledge, software, hardware. Um, we will be able to export the renewable energy through hydrogen, green ammonia, uh, in time. You know, that's that's ten to twenty years away uh, to to make that a significant reality, but. Perhaps our most important export opportunity at the moment, and this is very much, I think, from a South Australian perspective, is is to show some practical leadership. Um, And by that, what I mean is we we are achieving things in South Australia, uh, not because we're we're, we're showing off or anything like that. In in some ways in South Australia, it's succeed or fail. We, We are on a pathway. If you go back a few years, the stability of the grid was very, very poor. Um, the cost of electricity was escalating uh, quite steeply, but credit to the previous government, uh, their policies and in partnership with industry, they showed how good we can be in South Australia at making renewable energy. Now, our job, uh, as I see it, is to, to, to take that real positive, but then add a practicality to it, which is you've got to make it cheaper for consumers and you've got to make it more reliable for consumers. Um, and, and, you know, lower emissions, lower cost and fewer blackouts is, is not a brand new target. Everybody all around the world wants it. Um, but we're actually showing how that can be done in South Australia. You know, touch wood, as, as always, um, because they always have some surprises, but, but we, you know, the evidence, independent evidence is that we're doing that. And uh, as well as more tangible exports, I'd be thrilled to think that we can we can export uh, the, the 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 knowledge and the proof of how to make that happen. And that vision of a you know renewable energy powerhouse that that South Australia is is becoming and and has been a leader in Australia. Um, I'm a big fan of your renewable energy atlas, which maps out all the investment opportunities and and all the things that South Australia is doing. I was I was interested in your thoughts on hydrogen, on renewable hydrogen, because you've you've got a, had a plan since 2019. Can you tell us a little bit about your ambition and those practical things that you're doing in South Australia? Yeah, David, we, we we do have a very high ambition with regard to hydrogen and, and very clearly green hydrogen. Um, we're not the only ones. Uh, other states and other parts of the world are very keen to do that too. It's a, it's a it, it's it's a reality. It is coming. The hydrogen opportunity is, is clearly underpinned by uh, some large companies and some large um, uh, governments which have committed to consume hydrogen. So quite often people have figure out how to make something fantastic and they're going to look to someone to sell it to. Um, we know that there's going to be a hydrogen market. You know, Japan, South Korea, um, Port of Rotterdam, for example, in Europe um, and, and some North American context. But 
we're, we're especially well placed in Australia and South Australia because clean hydrogen requires a lot of space, a lot of sun, a lot of wind, access to coastline uh, to, to uh, export, uh, and of course, relatively cheap land by world standards. We have all of those things in abundance in South Australia. So I've got to say, I'm really pleased with the partnerships that we're developing with some of these consumer countries and companies who actually want to be on the ground floor with us developing a hydrogen production economy so that they can have a secure hydrogen consumption economy. And, and they know that if we develop it on, on both sides of supply and demand together, we'll, we'll form a good partnership for decades or, or longer to come. Now, I also am very keen for us to be a hydrogen consuming economy as well, but there is a bit of that chicken and egg thing. Um, hard to invest in plant and equipment uh, until you know you've got some customers and hard to get some customers until you know you can, can produce. And that's why that partnership uh, and with those partnerships that I referred to before are so important. So the investment in hydrogen production here will, I'm sure, be underpinned by export contract opportunities. Um, but then the production of hydrogen, of clean hydrogen, will flow fairly quickly thereafter to hydrogen consumption within our state as well. And, and the last thing I'd just like to add to that, please, is we are very clearly, very clearly focused on green hydrogen. And, and I expect that is that is where the world will get to, will be green, clean hydrogen, renewable energy produced hydrogen. But I'm very supportive of other jurisdictions if they want to, producing blue hydrogen and brown hydrogen uh, as, a, as a stopgap measure. We're not going to do that. But if they choose to do that, that's their business. And one of the reasons I think that's positive is because when we've just got hydrogen out there that's available, you, you start the consumption of it more quickly. So let's get as many organisations and, and, and governments focused on consuming whatever hydrogen is available through that process will only be focused on the green hydrogen. And I'm sure that's where those other jurisdictions will get to in the end anyway. Yeah, thanks, thanks for those comments. It's clear that South Australia has the assets to continue to be a leader um, in renewable energy and, as you say, not only be a producer of hydrogen but a consumer, which is a really exciting prospect. I understand there's also investment in electric vehicles. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, there is. It's another very important part of our work. Um, electric vehicles, as everybody would know, are incredibly positive because they don't have exhaust pipe you know, compared to petrol or diesel vehicles, there, there are no emissions. Um, if you put clean, renewable energy into them, well, then you've taken another big step forward. But you do have a, another one of those chicken and egg challenges where it's hard for people to commit uh, to, to purchase an electric vehicle till the costs come down a bit further. They are coming down a bit, a bit further. And perhaps more significantly, until there's a recharging network that they can rely on. But, of course... The investment in a recharging network doesn't come until there's enough vehicles in. So we're trying to break that, that nexus. Um, and we are investing $18.3 million into our electric vehicle action plan. 13.4 of that uh, is dedicated to co-investing with private enterprise in a, a network of recharging uh, stations all around the state. And, and I genuinely mean from the eastern end to the northern end to the you know western end to the southern end of, of, of South Australia, including metro and, and urban and peri-urban, of course. Um, 
we need to spend taxpayers' money on that before they are actually economically viable investments in the recharging network so that we create a net network so that we encourage people to purchase electric vehicles and then down the track that recharging network becomes viable in itself. So we see that as a very worthwhile way of, of spending taxpayers' money. We're very close to announcing the partners that, that we will engage with for that and we're looking at you know, 500 plus recharging stations all around the state. And the other part of, uh, of that $18.3 million is dedicated to smart recharging trials. So separate of having recharges, but how do we optimise uh, the use of electric vehicles to support our grid? And it, 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 people might wonder, well, why is the energy minister leading the charge for our government on electric vehicles? Why not transport or environment? Well, the energy minister sees an electric vehicle, uh, yes, of course, as clean transport, but actually, more excitingly to me, it's actually a mobile battery. Uh, you know, an electric vehicle is a mobile battery, and so we want to harness uh, an aggregated number of these, these mobile batteries, you know, thousands to begin with, then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands in, in years to come, um, and actually use them so that people can drive down their own cost of electricity in their homes and their businesses and use them um, much the same way as we have virtual power plants being developed. We've got nine virtual power plants being offered uh, by retailers in South Australia now, but the virtual power plant opportunities with electric vehicles are even greater because the battery is not stationary. The battery can be used in different places at different times of the day, so it's really exciting stuff. Very exciting, Mr. And, you know, you've talked a bit about matching these customers with demand and and, the, and sort of in this transition being able to, to accelerate that. You've talked about the private sector. Um, South Australia has been very innovative and you have a, a strong innovation culture to drive um, innovation solutions working in partnership. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see innovation in the energy sector really um, South Australia leading Australia in that role? Yeah, well, my, my perspective on that is that, is that innovation is driven by uh, ambition and necessity, right? Now, we have an ambition to, to do this really, really well, but we also we, we have a necessity. I mean, our, our, we're the only place to have ever had a statewide blackout and escalating high prices. You know, we, we couldn't leave it as it was, and we weren't going to go down the path of looking at new, you know, coal-fired generators or anything like that. We see the future. We see the opportunities. We just have to, to, to bind together in a really smart, practical way the opportunities that exist. And that's really where I see the innovation. And, and, and you know, we've, we've, we're working hard on the demand side uh, and we are not press-ganging anybody's demands uh, in any way whatsoever, but we are putting together opportunities for people to voluntarily surrender some of the control of some of their demands in return for, for financial benefits. And when you can come up with the recipes that are, that are attractive enough to bring a significant enough critical mass of households or businesses uh, together to do that, then you really start to get some huge benefits for your grid on the demand side as well. And, and for, for decades now, um, you, you know, the electrical grid has been looked at as well, demand does what it does, and you have to focus on the supply side to make sure that under as many conditions and scenarios as possible, you've always got enough electricity 
And then the next step is try and make it affordable. You know, that, that, that's the old world. We now have supply that changes significantly with weather. We have demand that changes significantly with weather um, and time of the day and time of the year. So we are we're matching variable supply and variable demand and providing incentives, models of incentive for suppliers and consumers so that we can match them up and actually smooth out our supply. So hydrogen, for example, will be a really important part of this when we do have more than the one electrolyzer that we've got running in South Australia at the moment because they can be turned on and off so quickly. Uh, new technology with regard to the management of appliances, even as simply as just being able to, to remote control when they turn on and off, there's nothing really rocket science about that, but when you have a, a critical mass of people doing that, turning their dishwashers or their washing machines or their pool pumps on after midnight, that, that sort of thing, just set it and in the morning it's all done. Um, when you get a critical mass of people doing that voluntarily because they're receiving, um, you know, attractive price signals, um, then you really do start to get a much, much more efficient grid instead of an old-style one that has to have all of the capacity ready to meet the peakiest demand that you could ever have on a, you know, the last, you know, the fifth day of a 45-degree uh, temperature week. Uh, you've got to have everything ready for that, but sitting around idle for most of the year, we're actually trying to make the whole system much more dynamic and use the renewable energy in a really smart way. Ben, I'm, I'm going to come back to just um, something you said earlier on the hydrogen. When we talked about hydrogen, you said um, South Australia is committed to to renewable hydrogen. Other states may go down the fossil hydrogen route. Um, if Australia is to become a renewable energy exporting superpower, um, how do you see states working together on the global export market rather than each state competing separately into the global market. Is there an opportunity for us to use the power of all the states to really tap that opportunity? Yeah, look, look, there is. There's definitely um, structured collaboration, and we do that already. But exports, there's a competition in exports as well. Every state, uh, you know, in fact, perhaps even every part of every state wants to wants to achieve as, as much as it can. So, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that healthy cooperation, healthy competition aspect of things. Um, we are focused on green hydrogen. That's it, you know, but we're, we would be um, we would be advantaged if other states are producing other hydrogen more quickly so that a hydrogen market develops more quickly. That will help us get to selling green hydrogen more quickly. And then you move down the track where consumers have a choice of, of brown, blue and green hydrogen. They'll all, they'll all gravitate towards green hydrogen uh, eventually, and, and the, the blue and the, the, the brown will disappear. I just believe that we'll get to that 100% green position quicker if we have other states uh, providing other types, not quite as clean hydrogen, sooner. So I support them doing that. I don't criticise them in any way. I think in the bigger picture that will help everybody, but we're not getting involved in that. We're just focused on the end game. Minister, thanks for that. And it's it's interesting to hear about the need, um, well, the benefit of collaboration between our states and also um, the need for continued leadership um, like that, that that you're providing for South Australia. To finish, we're very close to COP. We're a few weeks off COP26. Um, 
Do you have a view on on the importance of of our Prime Minister's attendance at COP26 and any implications of of, uh, his his not attending the conference? Well, um, look, I think you, you, you always front up. Is, is, is my view on most things in life, whether it's easy and fun or whether it's hard and challenging, you, you front up and you do the best that you can. That's my general view. Now, whatever else might be going on in the background uh, with, with regard to scheduling and a whole range of other pressures that, that I'm you know, not aware of, we'll, we'll accept that they might exist. But uh, you know, my view is always uh, you, you front up and, in fact, the harder it is going to be, the more important it is to front up. Uh, is 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 my way of looking at the world. But, you know, we, this year we are uh, already just a little bit over sixty percent renewable energy uh, in South Australia generation. AEMO predicts that we'll be at seventy eight percent renewable energy by twenty twenty five. So that's twenty two percent gas by twenty twenty five, which is something we're you know we are very you know, proud. It's probably not a great word to use, but, you know, we, it, it, is a, it is a really, really good thing for our state. And, and simultaneously, over the last three years, um, $303 per year reduction in the average annual cost for household electricity bills. And we've not had one blackout since the last election due to not having enough supply. We've had blackouts for lightning strikes or, or you know, truck hits a stony pole or, or all that sort of stuff but not for grid instability. And, um, you know, the reason to mention that is, I mean, I'm, I'm glad, of course, that's not, not your problem. I'm glad that we're going well and I recognise that any time we get, you know, we, we, we could have a problem. I don't, I don't sort of roll that out just assuming that job's done. It's not. Um, but we've got three years of proof that it can be done and we're not finished. Um, but... You know, I really do hope that that's helpful outside of South Australia, beyond South Australia, for other states, for Australia as a whole, for, for other countries, to, to at the very, very least have three years' achievement of something that hasn't actually happened anywhere else in the world. I just hope that's a, a positive example that that um, encourages other jurisdictions to really try hard in this area. Thanks for that, Minister. Thanks so much for your time on Goodwill Hunters. Marion, thank you for joining us. Um, I wanted to start with a question really on Australian politics and renewable energy. Um, could you sort of describe the politics, particularly over the last decade, I think, in relation to renewable energy policy or lack of policy, um, and perhaps finish on the dynamics in recent years around hydrogen? Well, I think you'd have to say over the last decades, policy on renewable energy has been an enormous bum fight. And um, not surprisingly, it's not only between the federal government and the states, but sometimes the feds and the states playing each other off. Uh, you know, so it's it's been terribly complicated and I have to say not great for the consumer. And I think we're still in the terribly com complicated phase because while we've had state governments, especially South Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, absolutely pushing renewable energy hard, and New South Wales in the last year has, I think, astounded everyone at how hard the minister pushed, um, we still have a very conflicted federal role in this. So 
I think that pattern, frankly, I think as long as Angus Taylor is in the energy job, that will continue. And I don't think it's just about Angus Taylor and his views. I think he's reflective of how strained these views still are, these policies still are in Canberra, in the coalition, and the kind of tight rope that they appear to want to walk rather than, if you like, doing what some of the state leaders did and take leadership positions. Building on that, Marion, um, we just spoke to South Australia's Minister Van Holst Pelican about um, alignment and collaboration between the states and, and the minister acknowledged that whilst um, it's not essential for the states to all be investing the same amounts in renewable energy, it certainly helps the cause um, if there is similar commitments across the states to investment in things like renewable hydrogen. In your view, has this, these federal politics that we're talking about, has that undermined efforts by the states to invest in renewable energy? I think it has, and it's also undermined uh, investment across the board in renewable energy. And while the individual states are doing some very interesting work, how they cooperate and how they cooperate in the national energy market is absolutely crucial. If you don't have the infrastructure that works with the grid, the so-called smart grid, working between the states, if you don't work out what we call the firming power behind the renewable energy, if you don't work out that that can be sustainable, then you start getting into trouble. And I think it's going to be immensely difficult over the next decade where we see finally, uh, like it or not, the coal-fired power stations coming out of the system how that transition is managed without putting up prices, without putting burdens on the consumers, is going to be uh, really um, dependent, I think, on how well the states cooperate together with Canberra. And the other side of that, of course, and, and I say this as a, a household owner of solar panels like many people around the country, a lot of people are really concerned about how the states are playing off uh, the consumer and the energy companies on what you get on feed-in tariffs, um, when and how the battery technology to back up your solar is going to be available and how easy it will be for the consumer to use that, not only in their home but for their car and things like that. Um, that's where we need actually national state policy to be working hand in hand together. Mm, it's interesting. And and um, this was partly the subject of, of your book, The Carbon Club, which looked at um, in, in part how renewable energy investments have been undermined. Um, so who is undermining it? Is, is it? is it just the federal government or are there other players that we can blame? Well, I think there's a number of players that basically have a vested interest in the current system, or at least perpetuating the current system as long as they can, for as long as they can. And that comes down to the coal industry, which has been slowly, of course, losing power uh, politically, but also the gas industry, who I think uh, their power is currently in the ascendancy in many ways. And so, the coal industry is slightly more complicated because I think when you look at 
the national party's role in this. They do want to try and preserve some very key seats for themselves in New South Wales and in Queensland, political seats that they need, but they also uh, want to keep on supporting the big export market for Australian coal. And they've got many people in the Liberal Party and in the Labor Party, frankly, that are very sympathetic to that. So that's one argument. But the second argument, and I think the, or the second issue, and I, I think this is probably the bigger issue for Australia at the moment, is what it does about its gas industry. And you can see the big players, Santos, Woodside, Origin, players like that, that are really trying to make as much money as they can during this transition period and keeping it going for as long as they can. And one of the problems, I think, for Australia is not only does that in many ways hold back uh, Australia's development of renewable energy and the big industries like green hydrogen, I'm sure you heard that from Twiggy Forest, but more importantly, it also ramps up Australia's per head uh, emissions of greenhouse gases because the LNG industry, as we now know, is a big contributor to Australia's LNG, uh, sorry, Australia's emissions profile. So the, the production and shipping of LNG is really going to impact our profile in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions. So, Marion, sort of just building on that, because if you add our scope three emissions from both export coal and from export gas, it makes us one of the world's largest, Australia, one of the world's largest um, emitters um, because of the, the footprint that that has. Um, but we, we did hear from um, Minister Van Horst Pelican um, in South Australia about how they thought they were successfully investing in providing cheaper and more reliable um, electricity and explicitly saying they weren't going to go into fossil hydrogen. They were going to only do renewable. But if other states wanted to do that, that was okay. Can, can you just comment on the sort of politics around that and hydrogen? Because it's been moving very quickly over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, obviously, South Australia has been a leader in renewable energy for years, uh, originally under the Labor government and then uh, to the surprise of many, I think, in Canberra, uh, the Liberal government kept that momentum going. I think one of the issues when we turn to hydrogen is will Australia, and that includes South Australia, will it back or put its dollars behind a green hydrogen industry, or as some I think in the government want to do, will they actually try and push for blue or brown hydrogen? In other words, hydrogen made with fossil fuels. And I think there's a lot of bits of federal policy, certainly, and I think state policy in some cases, being put into place at the moment to support a hydrogen industry made with fossil fuels. And I think you only have to look at the recent moves to uh, pour a lot of money into CCS in Australia. I think that is really about trying to back 
the blue and brown hydrogen, at least as an option for Australia. And I certainly think there's many in the federal government who have not let go of the dream of being able to continue a fossil fuel-based hydrogen industry, albeit with a, a, a lesser emissions profile. Yeah. So um, I think holding on to a, a pipe dream um, is probably more appropriate, Marianne. But in that in that context, um, we've got the COP coming up, you know, very soon. Um, and can you tell us what you expect to see at COP26 from Australia? Building on that, where do, where do you think we'll be as we, as we go into the, the opening days of COP? I have to say a couple of months ago, I thought we would have an idea of where we would be. And that idea seems to be getting slightly more uh, fragile the closer we get to COP. Look, Australia, at the end of the day, I think does have to, at some point, stand up for net zero by 2050. The original idea, as I understood back in June when I was writing a piece on this for Australian Foreign Affairs, is that the Prime Minister was going to go to the G20 in Rome at the end of October and essentially announce the net zero commitment there. Uh, by then, he would have had uh, the G7 behind him, the UN General Assembly behind him, so he wouldn't look like he was on the spot. It would look like a decision that the Prime Minister was bringing uh, to a forum that is very important to Australia, the G20. The scrapping that's gone on and on in the lead-up to the G20 has made that far more difficult. And also what I find amazing is that Angus Taylor still has not released the so-called technology plan. The modelling that was being done out of the department still hasn't been released. It's all very up in the air, much closer to Glasgow than we thought. I think the real underlying problem here is Australia's reluctance to formally increase its 2030 target. I think the government knows the minute it says net zero by 2050, the minute Morrison announces that, everyone, not only his domestic critics, but his allies and his opponents internationally will say, how is Australia going to get there with a target currently of 26 to 28% cuts? Japan, Canada, the US, Britain, the EU... Uh, even today, I saw that uh, Russia, uh, President Putin, has moved to a net zero by 2060. Um, the, the rest of the world is moving, um, but Australia really does have to move on that 2030 target. And I think that contradiction between announcing net zero and then having to deal with 2030 has been what is so, so difficult for Morrison uh, to grapple with the coalition party room. Yeah, but isn't that going to leave us pretty much standing alone in the world in, in all the, the major economies of not making that commitment? Well, ironically, you know, <laughs> I, I did speculate that we might be standing there with Saudi Arabia and Russia by the end of Glasgow, um, perhaps not thinking this could really happen. But 
and now, in fact, it looks like Putin's moved probably because he wants to get the Nord Stream deal through with Germany uh, for that, that flow of gas into Europe. Nevertheless, Australia's position is looking more and more isolated. And, you know, whenever you talk to overseas um, uh, officials on this, as I have this year talked to quite a few, the thing you always get back is, but Australia has so many advantages. Australia has so many ways to profit from this. Australia has so much opportunity here in the renewable space. Plus, you've got, you know, a great ability to raise capital. Uh, plus, you've got very smart people. Why are you unable to put this together? And I think you do come back to those two decades of fractures politics that I sort of wrote about uh, so um, in so much detail in my book. But I, I think that a lot of what's in there still is resonating as we head into Glasgow, sadly. If Australia already has a reputation for being isolated and an outlier in this space, that reputation will only be reinforced if our own Prime Minister doesn't attend COP. Does he need to attend? Like, are we overreacting by saying he has to be there? Or what's your view on his attendance at COP? Look, I think there's no doubt if he doesn't attend uh, Australia's reputation as a laggard on climate change will be absolutely cemented. You know, You've got to remember the last, uh, essentially the three big turning points on the global agreement of how we're going to get to 1.5 started in Copenhagen where basically Kevin Rudd put his prime ministership very much on the line uh, to try and get an outcome. Uh, in Paris, Malcolm Turnbull went there and at least talked the talk, even if he couldn't come back to Australia and walk the walk because of the party room. For Scott Morrison not to go to Glasgow, it will be seen as Australia not wanting to put its money where its mouth is on climate change. I have no doubt about that. No, and I think that essentially Morrison is weighing up the political pros and cons of this and it's come down as it sadly always does with Australian politics of a ruthless game of trying to count up the seats, the, the seats at the federal election that might go one way or the other based on what he does. So in order to be a renewable energy exporting superpower, which there's been a lot of talk about, particularly in the last year, Marian, um, we we need to do the complete opposite. We need to pivot and, and double down on, you know, in policies and investments into, into renewables that allow us not only at individual state level, but as a country to realise that potential. Um, but at the same time, as you say, we're being held back by the old fossil fuel industries that are, you know, trying to lock in for as long as possible. Um, their bit. So I'm. Um, I I think that um, the prime minister, you know, is sitting there looking like a bit like the uh, the the CEO of Netflix when you know he had to make a decision between sticking with DVDs. Or going into streaming, and I think you know, um, we we don't want to be the country that is is selling DVDs for the next two decades. Um, and so I think it's 
it is super important we embrace that new future, even if it's politically hard um, at the time. And I think, to your point, we've seen South Australia has done it. They've, you know, they've bridged two political parties to keep policies investment, and they're paying the dividends now. So I, I hope that we can do that. Any, any final thoughts on that before we conclude? I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head, and that is bipartisanship. This has got to be a national effort. And we've seen that now at the states, and we see that our state politicians on both sides, in fact, across the gambit, independence, uh, the whole the whole spread of political power, you know, sorry, the whole spread of political parties from independence to Greens, to Labor, uh, to Liberal, and even some nationals uh, in New South Wales, certainly, have been able to look at a vision for the future. But I fear that uh, that lack of non-partisan approach to this policy won't happen before the next election in Australia. And I find that profoundly disappointing because this is going to be hard. There is a huge amount of work to do, as anyone who's been in this space knows, and time is really running out. I mean, what as I wrote uh, the book as I wrote a lot of stuff about the politics and what what business was also doing uh, about whether it transitions or not. At the same time, I did a lot of work on the Great Barrier Reef, reporting on what was happening there and interviewing with scientists. And I know it's only one small window on the natural world, but you see what is happening there, uh, which is breathtakingly quick for the destruction of the um, of the reef. And we know that if greenhouse gas emissions aren't contained, we know, especially if the temperature goes above two degrees, the, the reef is in real, real trouble. But we just have to look around across uh, the world uh, in the last couple of years with what's happening uh, with both uh, with our weather patterns as well as what's happening to the natural world. And we know that there's a time limit for this. Everyone who's looked at this, every scientist who's credible who's looked at this has given us the same warning. So, you know, to be back in this place where we're arguing seat by seat in an Australian election about whether we should do this. I find that, uh, you know, very disheartening, frankly. Thanks, Marion, for those parting comments and thanks so much for your time. That was the final episode in our Goodwill Hunters Spring series. I'd like to say a huge thank you to WWF for partnering with us on this series and in particular my co-host Dermot. As we enter COP26, I hope this series has given you a lot to think about and more importantly, has demonstrated that yes, Australia can be a sustainability superpower. Our guests on the series are well equipped to lead the way along with the many other people like yourself who care about the safety, security and prosperity of all people now and in the future. This is our final season of Goodwill Hunters for 2021, but we'll be back in 2022 with an exciting lineup. 
Have a safe and happy end to the year. Make sure you tune in to COP26 and continue to join our conversation online via at GoodwillPod and hashtag RegenerateAustralia. On behalf of the entire team, thank you for listening and we'll see you soon.